I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Yeah, so Brian, like I was just saying, um, we, we do tend to like get on a, a curiosity train every once in a while and uh, where we kind of want to like unpack something we've spoken about on the podcast a little further. Now, typically this happens when we are talking about stuff that we've kind of covered on Feel Good Friday episodes, but we're actually going to do a, another kind of deep dive into something that we've recently spoken about, which I don't think the episode's actually out yet, but it's a upcoming Routine checkup episode. Um, and I'll let you figure out what it is after I introduce our guest today, uh, Michael Munchausen Weber. by proxy. Oh, you nailed it. <laughs> you got it. I know. I already know where we're going. Yes. Yes. <laughs> our guest today is Michael Weber. Uh, Michael is a 38-year police veteran uh, with 15 years spent investigating crimes against children cases. Weber has investigated over 50 reports of medical child abuse which I believe is also known as Munchausen by proxy, uh, leading to 14 different criminal offenders arrests. Um, this is going to be super interesting. Michael, first of all, thank you for being on the show and uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Well, like you said, I'm a almost now it's getting close to 39 year police veteran. Um, I live in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I am a detective for uh, the sheriff's office here, Tarrant County Sheriff's Office. And uh, all of the uh, cases I've investigated have come out of Tarrant County, Texas. I, one thing that I, that I, and, and, you know, I really do want, I, I want to really get into the, the um, medical child abuse. Um, but before we do, one thing that I've always really been curious about is I don't think we've ever had an opportunity to talk to a detective on the podcast. Yeah. So if, and, which <laughs> TV detective do you think you're most <laughs> like? That's the question that we've been dying to know. Real life is not like TV, guys. Uh, God, damn yeah. it. God damn it. It's not CSI Miami. Wait, Come wait. on. It there's not, even, it there's not, not even one that there's not even like one TV detective that's like remotely close. No. Magnum PI. No. Uh, Miami if Vice. Really, <laughs> oh, if you really want to reach back, I mean, you, you, got, I, you guys may be too young, but Columbo. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That is, uh, I mean, that's about as close as, as you're going to get, and it's not very cool. Like 10%. I, I, yeah, I was, I was expecting you to possibly say Walker, Texas Ranger. Oh, God, uh, no. <laughs> um, no, but my question actually was, um, you know, how, how, do you, how, do you get to, how do you get to the point of being a detective? Because from what I, again, I don't know, I really don't know much, but... From what I right. gather, a detective is a, a, like it's sort of a specialty, right? It's 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 a bit of a step up from um, maybe not a step up, but it, it's like a beat cop. Yeah, you gotta like you gotta work your way to detective. Um, you can't just like or can you just you know pass the police academy and go? I'm gonna be a detective. Uh, I have bad news for for millennials. No, you cannot do that. You actually have to put in the time on patrol. Um, and, and, and you really learn your investigative techniques being a patrol officer. That's where you, you learn, um, what, uh, that's where you learn how to investigate crimes. And then you apply that when you become a detective and in most departments, in some departments, it's a promoted position. Uh, and in some departments it is a lateral transfer, but you have to be selected for the position. Ooh. That's very cool. Yeah, interesting. And and for like for yourself, what was the what was the sort of uh the sort of timeline of like of going from working the beat to to eventually becoming, you know, promoted to detective? 
Well, the, I've had a long career path, obviously. Um, I started a small agency, went to a slightly bigger agency, and then went to Arlington Police Department. Um, and I retired from Arlington after 26 years at those three, same retirement system. But when I got to Arlington, I um, went into my, my first embedded, investigative position was as a narcotics detective. So un, undercover narcotics detective, which helps you learn a lot about how to write search warrants, things of that nature. <clears throat> um, and after I came out of narcotics, I've been back and Arlington had to rotate out of narcotics after four years. And you had to go back to patrol before you could go to another detective position. Um, I had been on patrol for about a year and I was thinking about going back and I, I wanted to go into to, uh, or actually a position for crimes against children's came open. And, um, you know, I, I, I met someone on patrol who had been in that position. I'm like, Hey, what's, what's the deal with this? And she told me, well, you, you work at a child advocacy center, which isn't at the police department. I'm like, Oh, so where's my sergeant? He's at the police department. So you, well, you're saying I can work at this child advocacy center and have a t autonomy to do, to be away from my sergeant and just work. And she's like, yeah, I'm like, sign me up. Um, it was, <laughs> I would love to say that I had this great passion to do kid work. No, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. It really appealed to me um, that I could work independently because in narcotics, I had a lieutenant's desk five feet from me, a sergeant's desk five feet, you know, five feet the other way. Mm -hmm. So it, it was very appealing to me. Now, once I got in there, what I realized about um, child abuse cases is they are, Oftentimes, the hardest cases to work in police work because you often have no physical evidence. No doubt. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious about also uh, when you said the hardest cases. I also sort of um, had the assumption or thought that those are the hardest cases because it's like when um, I, I have a few friends who are firefighters and they've talked about being first responders to like a car accident. And like they could roll up on an extremely traumatic scene that, you know, has a middle-aged person who's died and it's traumatic for sure. But the way that rolling up on a scene and, and having a, a child involved in the accident is like one of the hardest types of um, traumatic experiences I've, I've heard of somebody dealing with. And so when you said, you know, going into these child cases, child abuse cases, I assume that it also could be really difficult from a sort of trauma or traumatic standpoint. Is is that true? Or is that something that sort of went through your mind? Well, it it, it can be. I, I I think I'm I I'm not married. I don't have kids, so I think that eliminates. You know, I don't see my kid in a victim, right? I think, and I've talked to detectives who have seen their children in in the child victims that, uh, that, that they deal with and, and it can get to them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have necessarily that issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and, oh, and just y'all splice this together, but uh, to continue my career, I retired from Arlington after 24 years. And then I went to uh, a local DA's office. I was there for 10 years where I started working these medical child abuse cases. Um, mm -hmm. just very mm -hmm. happenstancely was assigned a case, went to my chief prosecutor and said, Hey, why don't you, you know, it's going to be hard for a guy with 30 cases on his caseload to handle these cases. There's so much work. Why don't you just give him more to me? And she's like, Mike, that's great. We haven't had any since I've been here in eight years. This is the first one. And I'm like, well, that's great. They're a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, um, that was in early 2009 and from 2009 to 2015, I ended up investigating 16 reports of this abuse involving six criminal cases. Wow. And then we had a change of leadership at the DA's office. Um, it's an elected position. We had a new DA get elected in 2015 uh, who decided she did not want her criminal investigators uh, investigating crimes um, and wanted them to basically just assist attorneys. Um, and so I was not allowed to investigate these cases anymore. And uh, so in 2018, um, Sheriff Bill Wayburn, Interestingly, 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 I could talk. <clears throat> interestingly enough, uh, Sheriff Wayburn was a local police chief. And when I was at the DA's office, we had a case that involved a family member of his that he, after separation, 
he ended up adopting, and it was a medical child abuse case. So he had a special interest in this. Oh, wow. And in 2018, he brought me over to the sheriff's office because we knew these cases were not being actively investigated. Right. And he brought me over specifically to do that. How, um, how much and other things? It's not the only thing I do. Sure, but how, sure. How much like um, uh, say do you have in the cases that you solve? Like even even when you were describing like the you know the sixteen cases um, before this this person got elected, the DA got elected in twenty fifteen. Like, do you when you show up to work in the morning, do you sort of have any sense of autonomy of like, okay, this is the case I'm going to work on today. This is what you sure. know has priority, yeah. and uh, yeah, and then, would, yeah. Yeah, part of the part of the one of the most important things being a detective is is knowing how to prioritize your cases, right? And, and that is a where I work currently. That is a, a decision that the detective makes. Um, and now I say that you know you, your bosses may come to you saying, "Hey, we've got this this case. It's a heat seeker." You know, you, you know, you, you may have something like that happen, but for the most part, just on generic cases. Um, that the individual detective decides. And mm. you know, I always put, I make my decisions based on the risk to the victim. Is the victim protected? Is the victim safe? Mm. Could the victim be further abuse? And mm. so for that reason, medical child abuse cases always are number one on my list. Mm-hmm. How many like medical child abuse cases might be, um, might be going on at the same time? What, what, something that was interesting in the conversation that we recently had um, was that uh, we we learned that medical child abuse is actually a lot more common than um, we might think. Yeah. That and was so, the conversation we had with Andrea Dunlop, uh, which which was you know incredible incredible episode. Um, uh, and the if you if people want if people haven't heard it, um, it actually it actually came out on March eighth. So yeah. as of recording, this it just came out. And so and so I'm wondering like. Um, Andrea had mentioned that that like if you suspect that that might be going on in a in a family you know, then um, report it to police and child protective services. So I'm I'm assuming that there's a lot of reports maybe of this stuff. But like, how do you how do you are there a lot of reports? And if there are, how do you um, follow up on them to see if there's any substance behind those um, reports? How do you detective them? How do you detect it? <laughs> Well, first, let's talk about the prevalency. Um, It is much more prevalent than the media tells you. The media always reports it as rare, which is not true. Um, Just from the numbers at at Cook Children's, uh, in a year and a half time period, I'm sorry, let's be very specific. From February of 2018 to September of 2019, they had uh, 52 reports of this. That led to 14 CPS separations. Um, and also led to two arrests because I had just in I had just come back on in 2018 to the sheriff's office in December and started investigating them again. And uh, before that, there really was a police involvement in these cases. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that is the norm uh, pretty much throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have those numbers from Tarrant County, right? I, and from January of 19 until currently. Uh, I we've made arrests on nine offenders. I filed cases on four offenders in 2021 alone. Um, and if you, you may say, oh, well, that's just Texas. People down there are weird, right? Because we all have our prejudices. Um, but if you look at the study done by Seattle Children's, they looked at a four-year period from 2011 to 2015, and during that period, and this is a historical, they're going back and looking at old cases. Um, they have 143 referrals for medical child abuse during those, during those four years. They went through and thoroughly examined all the medical records, which you have to do in these cases, a page-by-page examination of every history that mom gives and what the findings were. Um, and they, they were able to uh, confirm 65 cases of medical child abuse during that a four-year time period. That's about 13 a year, uh, a little over one a month. Um, the interesting aspect of that, that was roughly two-thirds of the amount of abusive head trauma cases they had during the same time period. And mm-hmm. I talked I, I talked to Carol Jenny, and uh, there were zero police prosecutions or arrests in those cases. Wow. I, like, I, I just want to, for folks that are that are listening, I, I, I want to just like put into context 
the amount of of like expertise that that Michael is is like kind of bringing to the table here and, and even for you Brian like um Michael you're 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 national expert on Munchausen by proxy uh you're a member of the American Professional Society on the, the on the abuse of children's the APSAC committee on Munchausen by proxy uh Michael's also a national speaker and trainer on the topic of medical child abuse and outside of that um He's also written articles in a number of peer-reviewed publications surrounding the topic itself. I, one thing that I'm just kind of like curious about is, you know, I'm sure there's other detectives in the U.S. that are working on these types of things. But at what point, like, how common is it for like a detective who who's working on something that's kind of specialized, I guess, in a way, um, to be so involved in like the you know, the education and the, the, like the awareness, the, you know, writing articles, being a part of committees, like, is that, is that common for detectives that work in this kind of field? Or is this just something that like you have looked at and gone, this is a fucking problem. It's not being like tackled the way that it should be. It's not, you know, there needs to be more, more awareness. So like you, yourself just made the decision to like, I'm going to fully invest my yeah. entire life. Like how do you go this? from the guy who was like, Oh, I just like some autonomy from yeah. being away from my surgeon to like, <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. I got to yeah. fucking yeah. make some <laughs> change here. Trust me. It wasn't planned. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is, you know, you call it what you want to, whatever your faith is. Um, it's not like I picked this path. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, there's so many things that went into where, where I am now on, on this topic that, um, you know, I, I don't think it's happenstance. Um, however I got here, which by the way, was not a plan at all. Mm -hmm. When I left Arlington, I would plan to go to the DA's office, retire over there, help them with cases. It was a second, it was a second, uh, tier job in the law enforcement community, right? I, I wasn't going to be on the front line anymore. Um, but when this happened, it came to the point where I had to put myself back on the front line or I could sit there and have people call me on cases that I could do nothing about. Ooh. Right. And all I could say is, well, if you can get the detective to call me, I can certainly provide guidance because I'm going to tell you, you can't call a detective and get in the middle of their case. They're not going to take that very well. Mm -hmm. Um, they have to reach out to you. I, and I, you know, I earlier today, I've talked to people before, you know, I will talk to anyone that any law enforcement uh, person that calls me, but this was certainly not a life plan of mine mm -hmm. um, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, as far as whether, you know, this is uncommon for law enforcement, I, I don't really know. Uh, when I started working these cases, I, there was nothing I, I you know, Thank God Mark Feldman had a website, Dr. Mark Feldman, that I could go to. And he was very, very uh, nice to take phone calls from me and got mm -hmm. me through this, as was my child abuse pediatrician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman at Cook's Children's. Both of them had a, had an understanding of this that that I did not. Mm -hmm. Very inter interestingly, it made sense to me pretty quick, um, you know, that if you tell the doctor something false, you're going to get a false diagnosis. A lot of people have a lot of trouble understanding that. Mm. I got it fairly quick. Um, and, you know, having people that like Dr. Kaufman that I trusted her opinion also helped with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and do do Dr. Feldman was really a godsend on my earlier cases. Just, you know, I, I wouldn't give him case details, but he would provide me, uh, pro provide me info, you know, what this isn't, you know, they don't, they're, they're not crazy. They don't really believe their child's sick. They know what they're doing. They know what's wrong when they're doing it, which was, I think, very important, um, you know, for me to understand and mm. just, just to, to help me grasp it mentally, which is really hard for, for a lot of seasoned police detectives to grasp. I mean, I think it's hard for like anyone to grasp, you know, like even for us, you know, the lay people on the outside looking in and, and seeing stories of this, it's like, it's a, it's a fucking head scratcher. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, it's, and like, what, like one, you know, just, just to get maybe not specific to a specific case, um, because I feel like maybe there's like some, some like confidentiality shit that you can't really go into there. But like, 
you know, considering like I, I know I know like of of stories of cases where there's been like examples of like unneeded surgery. Sure. That 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 happens on a child. How does how does that happen? How, like what what's happening for the information to slip through the cracks yeah. to to the point where, uh, you know, a, 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 a pediatric doctor is going to go. All right. Yeah, I guess we're like going to give this kid sinus surgery because we were told this or, you know, how, do, how the fuck does that work? Well, and, and that's the question that the public has, right, is how can a medical professional who has all this training do a surgery that is unneeded? And again, it goes back to the importance of medical history. Doctors will tell you that 90% of medical decisions um, are uh, just overall are made based on the medical history provided by the patient or when you're talking about a child provided by the parent and when that parent intentionally gives a false medical history, you're going to get a false diagnosis every time. And these offenders also pick things, pick ailments that are very hard to medically test for, which is why mm. we see these patterns in these cases, because they're picking the same things because they know that they're, you know, if they do their research, they know that these things are not easily tested. And again, this, this again shows that pattern of deception, right? This is a planned out type of abuse. Uh, these it, offenders have a lot of commonalities with pedo, with uh, pedophiles and, and pedophilia. What what are some of the um, uh, things that like the, the what are some of the patterns that that are red flags that like if you are um, doing research on a case and you find you find out that they're saying like a certain set of things? What are some of those things that might sort of be a red flag to you? Well, and as my child abuse pediatrician told me when I started this, the biggest red flag is when you have. Uh, Multiple medical symptoms over multiple body systems that don't make medical sense. So you've got a child with GI issues that, you know, they have testing, there's there's negative tests, but yet mom's still saying this kid's not getting weight, this kid's, kid's uh, not eating, or the kid has diarrhea all the time, but yet whenever the kid's inpatient, that ha- the kid doesn't have diarrhea. Um, um, you know, it's... It's those types of, of, of things. Now, as far as for red flags, we'll often see GI issues accompanied with neurological issues. You know, seizures is a big thing, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, even if you have a, a three-day EEG, you may not have a seizure that day, right? So it, it's only going to catch it on the EEG if you're having a seizure. So mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, a lot of epilepsy diagnoses are based on history. And you can get drugs for epilepsy. And once you start going down the medication train, well, then, um, you know, I had a dad who said it probably better than I could. You, you know, the the side effects of the medication now become the symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So because the doctors don't know, um, um, you know, the, the, the kid doesn't need this medication that they're getting. Um Right. And I, you know, I just so y'all know, I can't talk about cases that have a disposition like Hopia Barra that the uh, Andrea's podcast is about, or right. or or uh, George Honeycutt and uh, his uh, ex Elizabeth Honeycutt. Um, we can talk about those. But the red, you just see this pattern, you know, food allergies. Um, uh, leg braces. Mm. Cranial helmets. You just see these patterns start to pop. I'm feeding to you with a fund application in the central line when there's really not a lot in medical oh. testing to indicate the need for any of it. God damn, yeah. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I, I'm really interested in, I, I'd love to like talk about some of those cases, um, like the Hopia Bar one, but but um, before we maybe get into that, I'm curious about, there's something that's like a, a bit 
still confusing for me, which is the fact that like this is the only disease that we've talked about that is also a crime. So you know, Munchausen by proxy is a crime, but it's also the name of the disease. And so I feel like this is one of those situations. And like, you know, as most people know in in popular culture today, there's a lot of questions about like police involvement in mental health. Uh, should, mental, we be involved? Mental, should, me- should we be involved with pedophiles? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, but, but also like my question is, or, and also my question is, is, is like, there is, I mean, there's probably not, not a more clear place where you should be involved when there is a crime also being happening. Right. So like, but like how, how do you balance um, the sort of detective work and the policing side of this that has to be done because there's a crime happening um, and also sort of balance the sort of medical side of things in ensuring that the medical side of things is also I guess like like, um, like being ha- considered. If, if I can just like kind of tag a question in there, do you think like out of the cases that you've worked with, do you think... Because one of the things that really stuck out to me when we spoke to Andrea was that she she sort of compared Munchausen by proxy to um, like a, an addiction, like an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to gambling, an addiction to what, what you know, what have you, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. And and so, you know, hearing you talk about this now, it, it's making me kind of I'm, I'm curious, based on the how close you've been to so many cases do you have uh, do you have any thoughts on whether or not the some, if some, maybe one or maybe all of the people that have been involved in this type of abuse have an ability to um, seek treatment? You know, it's like like because because again, like for me, where I'm sitting, I look at this. If I it, it, the the Hope Yabara thing, I I look at her and I go, that's a that's a sick woman. I mean, she was doing awful things um, mentally. But she knew she can't, but, she, Right, sure. Well, she, might have, she might have known what she was doing, sure. But, like, right. there's got to be something going on mentally that's, like, just sure. wrong, off. She's, she's mentally ill. Um, do you think that there's, there's a possibility for someone who has, has been doing something like, like Hopiabara to be treated to a point where they go, okay, I, I recognize that I was fucking up and I did something horrible and now I'm, now I'm better. I, I don't think I'll commit that abuse again. You know, like, I mean, Hopi Ibarra, she's not in prison for the rest of her life, I don't think, right? No, she's, she's not in prison anymore. She's, she's not even in prison. Years. Okay, she, yeah, she's there you out. go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's very important to talk about the distinction between <clears throat> being mentally ill and being mentally incompetent in the legal system. So... right. You're not mentally incompetent in the legal system if you know what you're doing is wrong when you're doing it, right? And these offenders absolutely know that. They demonstrate it in so many ways. Now, in the DSM, you may have a mental illness. Um, you know, uh, this is in the DSM. It's under factitious disorder imposed on another. But if you read what they say about it in uh, the factitious disorder imposed on another, they they actually call it a crime in the DSM. Mm. Um, so... And depression's in the DSM. Pedophilia's been in the DSM since 1952. Mm-hmm. And we prosecute those people every day. What we're talking about here is the public perception, and very specifically the public perception of motherhood. And people don't want that perception disturbed. And we fight that at trial all the time. Now, whether they can recover, um, you know, Dr. Sanders and Dr. Bursch wrote a great paper on this in 2019. And again, the commonalities with pedophilia, right? They have to be able, just like a pedophile, to admit their entire course of conduct in order to be even eligible for psychiatric treatment. And right. so few of these offenders were able to do that. Right. Yeah. That's like the 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 sort of like narcissistic tendencies to just not yeah. want to go near admitting that they were in the wrong or that they did anything. But there's also like a, a Dr. James Cantor who talked to us about pedophilia said is that pedophiles can't even say that they are, um, have pedophilic thoughts because then they can be. Um, right. But, it, but in this yeah. case, it's like, you're already caught. Right. We already right, know you yeah, did right, it. Yeah. So like, if you want fucking help, yeah. you gotta say, right. you gotta say, right. You gotta say, yes, I am. You know, yes, I have 
did this to my my daughter to you know I stuck a feeding tube in my daughter to feed her and told everybody that she had fucking you know whatever cancer right but but they you know and again, they don't I mean, they don't own up to it you you talk about the commonalities with pedophilia I mean Andrea talks about it as an addiction I look at it more as a compulsion these offenders have a compulsion to commit this abuse that sure. overrides any fear of consequences um, for this. And to be very frank, in medical child abuse, those, those fear, the consequences, uh, we catch a very, very small percentage of them. So there's not a huge fear of consequences. Um, we talked about the psychological treatment of the offender being extremely difficult, exactly like in pedophilia. You also have grooming of the victims as they get older in this abuse, just like Ooh. in pedophilia. They are groomed to play the sick role. Everyone remembers Gypsy Blanchard. Um, that case, she's 22, still sitting in a wheelchair, right? Because her mom wants her to. Um, the pattern of deceit to avoid detection, just like with a pedophile, just like with a pedophile. Um, when I interview these offenders, they will, I will give them um, certain facts. They will change their story to adjust to those facts. And I'll give them a little more. They'll change the story a little more. And hopefully I'll eventually get admissions and never get a full confession. Mm. That is every sex offender interview, every physical child abuse interview I've ever had. Um, the victims love their offenders. You know, in this abuse, uh, 95.6% of the time, according to a uh, literary study then in 2017, the offender is going to be their mother. So they love the offender. Yeah. But, I mean... In sexual abuse, normally they love the offender. They just want the abuse to stop. And this abuse, they love the offender. They have no idea that they're even being abused. Right. They have no baseline for help. And uh, then you have the manipulation of the uh, adults around the victim. And sexual abuse is to get access to the victim for sex. Um, in this abuse, um, it's you know the manipulation of the medical community to perform the surgeries that are unneeded. And then oftentimes the manipulation of the legal community to get access returned to the child. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times family courts give these kids, give these kids back to these parents and the abuse will, if they don't, if there's no consequences, the abuse will continue. Hmm. When it, when it, when the victim doesn't know that they are a victim and the uh, uh, person who's being accused is so oh, deceitful, oh, how do you identify these cases that that these situations are happening like where where do the leads on these cases come from um you know they can come from anywhere i had uh i've had them come from a school nurse i've had them come from school teachers i've had most of them come from our childhood uh, from our um children's hospital uh doctors um and yeah it's it's very important my children's hospital has dedicated some additional resources to this because they have, have identified it as a problem and they are the only children's hospital that I'm aware of in the United States that's not bad. Um, and it's it's important. When you're talking about a four-year-old who's been through multiple, multiple surgeries, you're talking 25,000 pages of medical records that have to be gone through. Now, the child abuse pediatrician, they need help doing it, right? They have other responsibilities. It will take, for let's say 25,000 pages, you are talking... 120 hours specifically for that case for a child abuse pediatrician to go through all those records. Mm. I've known child abuse pediatricians who done and all their off time because of the concern for the child. But you've had it, that is what has to be done. And it needs to be done to be fair to the offender also, right? Because you don't want to falsely accuse. Um, and I think we have a pretty good, it's not perfect, and it's, you know, the as far as I know, the only one of its kind, but we have a pretty good system in Tarrant County of identifying these cases. And, um, you know, police involvement is so important in these cases because we can get evidence that the medical community cannot. And mm -hmm. doctors should never be put in the position of being, of being the investigative point on these cases, right? That should always be police. We abdicate that, uh, that uh, responsibility pretty consistently in these cases in, in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we can do things that medical professionals can. You know, I can get other evidence that they can't. I can talk to people outside the hospital system. I can talk to friends. I can talk to, you know, I can, you know, if I develop probable cause, I can get her computing devices, which include cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. I can see what she's texting. I can check her social media. Is she posting 
oh, my child's dying in the hospital. Her oxygen was down to 20. And meanwhile, mm. there's you look at the hospital records and the child is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these are some of the ways you start to identify it, and then you you kind of go on from there and, and build your case and build your evidence. How does child protective services fit into that equation? Uh, and you know, we do separate investigations, but we share information, right? <clears throat> Their concern is the safety of the child. Kind of the problem with this abuse, number one, is that child protective services in every state except Arizona and uh, Arkansas, uh, do not have any policies on this type of abuse. And it's a very different investigation. So, and they also provide no mandated training to their investigators on this abuse. Certainly in Texas, that's the case, and pretty much everywhere else. Mm. So you have it, and the child abuse system is mandated for um, their goal is family reunification, right? And if you read Sanders and Bursch's mm. offender treatment paper, that paper says that if the offender cannot accept responsibility for her actions, you move straight to termination of parental rights. Ooh. So you've got this going on. You've got a collision of family reunification with need to terminate rights. Mm-hmm. And family reunification usually wins. So we're pretty consistently putting victims back with parents who are abusive in, in these cases. Wow. Like that, it's really fascinating to hear that there's, you know, outside of just Arizona and Arkansas, there's not really much um, in the way of like, I guess, legislation that can, that's directed specifically towards this kind of abuse. Is there, are there any kind of moves in, in, in Texas at least? Like, are you, are you seeing any kind of move, move forward to, to get legislation involved here that can, can kind of benefit the victims of this type of abuse? We have been to the legislature. Uh, we're going back for a third time this year. We just had our bill uh, get a bill number. Um, Texas legislature meets every two years. And we are going back this year to try to get a law passed. Uh, the law would say, it would state that uh, if you, if a caregiver provides a false medical history to a medical provider, provider that leads to a medical intervention that causes mental impairment, um, bodily injury, or serious bodily injury. That would be a third-degree felony in the state of Texas. If we can get that law passed, which is highly, we'll see, right? I mean, Texas is very law and order, but Texas is also very family-oriented. If we can get that law passed, it would be the first law of its kind in the nation. There's no no criminal law specific to this abuse in any state. Mm Man, it's uh, it's uh, it's heavy. It's heavy yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's a know? lot to think about. Yeah. Also, um, like the legal thing, it's so it's so um hard. I think of like when you're talking about getting that 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 law passed. I think about um, you know, these situations where so like let's just throw out like an an arbitrary number to to make my point. But like let's say one percent of families uh, are affected by uh, a factitious disorder like this or Munchausen by proxy, you make a law to make sure that you're getting like able to capture those things. But what is the unintended consequence that it might have on the rest of the population? And um, like something, these, these ideas sound so it sounds so good and right when you, when you present it, but then I, it it just leads me to wonder like, what are all the things I don't know about that? It, that it could affect. Are there, are there like, things that are being brought up of like, Hey, like, you know, we could pass this law, but here's the other types of people that it would affect. Have, have you heard any sort of, Oh yes, we it? have. I mean, we, we, we've obviously had opposition to this law, right. And the opposition is always like, yeah, Oh, I've been falsely accused of, of harming my child. You know, I, I had this, I had that. Um, the interesting thing about those arguments you know, right now the 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 law enforcement education level on this is almost zero. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do national trainings, but I I have not seen anything um, similar. Anyone out there doing anything similar on this topic? There is no, you know, there's tons of 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 money dedicated toward human trafficking, and yeah, that's a problem, right? There's nothing dedicated toward this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you. 
you have all of that, but we had the, the opposition's actual logical argument. Their logical argument was the system sucks. The system almost stole our kids. We hate the system. Oh, and we don't want the system to change. That is their <laughs> logical argument. It's done with a lot of emotion and a lot of crying, and it's very convincing to the legislatures. I think a story would help about how important a police investigation could be, because police investigations do not just convict the guilty. They also clear the innocent, right? Mm -hmm. We had a case at Cook's Children's. It was a 16-year-old. She had a feeding tube, a central line. Um, She was inpatient. Her mom was in the room with her. Uh, Nurses noticed uh, you know, they were complaining. She was complaining of throwing up blood. The nurses noticed that when they went in, she showed blood in the toilet, in the bathroom, in the hospital room. There was no blood splatter. If you're throwing up, there's going to be splatter. Smart nurses, right? Hmm. So, the, so the doctor confronts her. And the nurses believe she was, she had a central line, so they believe she was taking blood out of her central line and putting it in the toilet. Jesus. The doctor confronts mom and daughter. Mom and daughter both deny the next day, the doctor comes to, to daughter and mom, or I'm sorry, mom, the next day, mom comes to the doctor and says, my daughter has something to tell you. The doctor goes into the room, mom's sitting by the bedside, holding the daughter's hand, which could, 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 be, could be comforting or could be a control technique, right? Could be either one. Um, as the daughter tells the doctor that she has let herself into the toilet and has been falsifying her medical conditions. Um, We were then notified. Obviously, the hospital was concerned that mom was involved in this care because mom was in the hospital room when all all this was happening. But the bathroom in the hospital room has a door and a lock, right? So me and and a female partner who was pregnant at the time, very motherly, we went to the hospital. My My goal was to get mom out of the room, get her in the side room, um, and then after I get her in the side room, my partner go in and talk to the 16. The nurses had said they were texting between them when the nurses were in the room, and I wanted to know what was in those texts. So luckily when we got there, mom was actually downstairs getting a drink. So I called mom coming off the elevator. So she had no idea. as She couldn't control the daughter. We go into a side room. She was very cooperative. Um, she actually had deleted all of her text messages, which wasn't concerning to me because she didn't have time. She didn't know we were coming. She didn't know there was any police involvement. She didn't have time to do that. She was just one of these people who always cleared out her text messages. Mm. Uh, my partner went into the daughter's room and her, the daughter let her look at the text messages on her daughter's phone, on the daughter's phone from mom. And mom was like, I can't believe you had done this. I can't believe that you have, you know, caused all this in our family. I can't believe that you, you need to do what the doctors tell you to do. Extremely appropriate. So very Ooh. quickly, we were able to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up here. This isn't what it appears to be. Right. Cooks right. did a psych admit to the girl. Mom did not bite that. On a psych admittal, that would mean separation from mom and daughter. If she was an offender, she would have lost her crap over that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because she wouldn't, she, she couldn't be separated from, from, from the victim. Uh, by the end of that hospitalization, the victim had got psychiatric care. Uh, the feeding tube was removed. The central line was removed. Now you still have to do your due diligence. We still did a medical record review. And what we found going through medical and social history of this family is the victim had a very high achieving brother who was in a very prestigious institution studying to do something very, very prestigious. And um, her father was a good dad, but he worked all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this was kind of her way to get attention from her mind. What we also saw was there was no, there was no big surgeries when she was a kid, right? Everything started about the time she hit puberty. Mm. Um, And so hopefully what we did is identify, you know, the most common psych comorbidity in this is Munchausen, doing it to yourself. Yeah. Right. Mm. And a lot of these offenders would do it to themselves before they do it to their kids. So hopefully what we did in that situation is identify and stop someone who may do this to their kid in the future by getting right. them the right kind of help. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. But without police involvement, mom would have been under suspicion 
yeah. for who knows how long by the medical establishment. Yeah. Unfairly under suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like, I remember when we were speaking to Andrew, we were talking about, um, you know, like people being falsely accused. And and I had this thought where I went, how the fuck does that even happen? But then hearing this story, I go, oh, yeah, I can see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I, I mean, I've no, I know I, I knew someone uh, who who was who had Munchausen. Um, not Munchausen by proxy, but like Munchausen. They were telling us that she had cancer. She didn't have cancer. Right. And like, you know, so like if, if, and you know, we were in like university at the time. So like I could, I can imagine, you know, it's her as like a you know 14 year old. If she was pulling that shit, you know, that could, that could it very easily as we can, as we just heard, can easily lead to a pretty hairy situation. Yeah. Well, and you know, Andrea talked about some of those behaviors in her sister on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I mean, you know, what do you, are, you're not, not to, you know, I don't, I don't want to say this to be, to be rude, but I, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing, I quit. I'm guessing you're, <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing that day like is, 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 is going to be soon. Yeah. It's fast approaching. Yeah. Like, do you, do you see yourself passing on the torch to, you know, what, what kind of, um, how do you see, how do you see things panning out in terms of like what your job is when you leave? Um, do you feel Are like you, there's someone that, that there's like, you know, competent people there to kind of take over and, and ensure that the work that you've put in so far continues to, to, uh, to reign? Um, un- unfortunately, you know, the people see the work involved in this and a lot of, a lot of them run, yeah. um, and the subject matter makes a lot of them uncomfortable also. hundred percent. Uh, I, I right now, um, you know, don't, don't have, it's not like I'm mentoring someone on this topic. Uh, I wish I was because I will. I trust me. I will leave in two to three years. I will be done. Um, but hopefully during that time period, we can make some changes. You know, that's why getting getting the law enacted is so important because then the law mm-hmm. enforcement will have to train to this. They will have mm-hmm. to address it if there is a if there is a law. Uh, the vacuum of education on this. I mean, pediatricians. Uh, they did. They in my state, they're mandated an hour of uh, uh, CLE training on human trafficking. They re- they received nothing on this. Mm. Um, yeah, and just regular pediatricians in med school don't don't receive any training. So there is, they know as much about this as the average person on the street, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so it's you can't. That's when people are like, well, how come the doctor didn't know that she was committing this abuse? They they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is just an education vacuum. There's, and that goes with prosec- criminal prosecutors, family court, judges, criminal judges. It is across the board. I mean, I'm doing as much as I can to, to especially in my jurisdiction, um, to alleviate that. But, you know, I'm only one person. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, this is, uh, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to be able to pick your brain about the work that you do. Um, obviously very heavy topic, but something that's important. And again, like one of the things that we talked about with Andrew was like, this is, um, this isn't a rare thing. And, and like you had just said, this is not something that people are really aware of, even though it's not rare. And so we really appreciate you taking time out of your Mm -hmm. schedule to have this conversation with us so that our listeners can just be a little bit more, um, aware of, of sure. what is happening out there and, and, you know, the, with the, the potential to, to, you know, if it is happening in or around them that they can spot the signals and, and, you know, help make the change. Sure. And, and, and all the prevalency thing, you know, if you think about it, and if you were going to commit this abuse in 1992 and you had no medical knowledge, I mean, that's a ton of work, right? You'd have to go to a library. You'd have Ooh. to research. Um, now it's a, Five minute Google search. TikTok. You know yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You know, just, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask about uh, about TikTok and social media, and if if oh. Michael, if you think that social media has an influence on how prevalent this is, because it's so it is gas like, to the fire. Because people are yeah. like so, they just want to like there. There's people who seek attention on and yeah. validation on those platforms, and like, what what better way for there to be gas put on this fire, as you, mm-hmm. as you said. Mm-hmm. Right. It is, it is, it is gas to the flame um, for this abuse. It's also great evidence, right? So, right. Yeah. Um, right. you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a double-edged sword, but you have, you know, the internet that makes this easy to commit. And then you have social media that 
can fuel the attention-seeking aspect of it. Ooh. And it's just, it's it really is fire to the, or uh, gas to the fire. There was, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the the uh, situation that happened last week, but there was a, a, a couple in the States, um, young couple with a young kid who, they're both military service members, I believe, and, and they had uh, wrapped their kid in uh, saran wrap and uh had them in a video this is like mom vlogger and they were like joking around about like the kid was being bad so they wrapped them in saran wrap and like they thought it was fun and that they like the kid was kind of laughing and stuff but then at the end there was a clip of the kid crying i think and anyway cps came and took the kid away for the weekend and like the mom went on and was crying about it but people had complained and the video sort of went viral and they were like fuck these parents they're trash parents and um and then They were like, somebody should call CBS. So people did. And right. then CBS came and took the kid away to do an investigation. Um, you know, whether or not yeah. that was actually a dangerous situation or not, it's hard to say. But like the fact that social media just yeah. allows things like this, you know, good and bad. When I was 15 and worked at Canadian Tire, uh, my buddy Chris, who worked with me in sporting in the sporting goods department, he took me into the into the warehouse in the back and did that to me, tied tied me up in in saran wrap. And while I was on a computer chair and uh, I sort of wish that someone reported him and someone came and took me away from that job because it fucking sucked. <laughs> so you're a Canuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. We're all the way up here in the uh, Great White North. Uh, Michael, again, thank you. This has been a real treat and uh, we appreciate you taking your time to chat with us. Certainly. Thank you, guys. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.